Welcome to today's Friday Club discussion. We have four very experienced people from the cash and treasury management business to discuss some of the current issues of the day. We've got Dan Blumen from Partner at the Treasury Alliance, one of the leading consultancies in the States, working in North America and Latin America primarily, um, who's based in Chicago. Kai Ingram, who is regional treasurer for SAP Miller, and he's based in London and is responsible for Europe and global uh, corporate cash management. Then we've got Neil, who works in Switzerland, is global cash manager for ABP Group, and has huge projects, as you'll discover, um, for global cash concentration and so on. And then Stephen Pigney, who's one of the reasons Barclays have kept in the cash management business over the last 20 years and has worked in Europe and the Africa mainly. And he's now retired after many decades at Barclays and is a now an international cash management consultant. One of the biggest problems corporate treasury has got today is regulatory compliance. Thomson Reuters have a, a recording mechanism which records a number of amendments each day to relevant things like Sarbanes-Oxley, Basel III and so on. And the amendments are now running at 130 per business day throughout the year. It's a major problem as you all know. But it's also an opportunity. Guy, you were saying that the problem is, for example, in money market funds is how to do compliance and comply with all the different things. Is there any way you're turning that into an opportunity, a business opportunity? Um, I guess so. It's giving us a bit of a, uh, an impetus to, to reevaluate whether money market funds are still doing what they um, were doing when we started using them. So actually, we're ramping down our use and setting ourselves up to do other things with our, with our cash, um, using tri-party repos and um, buying corporate CP for a start. Mm -hmm. And how about you, Neil? What's happening there in terms of dealing with compliance, not just in money market funds, but other things as well? Yeah, and I mean, I, I would echo uh, Guy's comments as well. But um, at its simplest level, I, can, I just want to relate a, a quick story. We decided as part of our projects to open bank, uh, bank accounts, simple uh, matter of opening bank accounts. And in two separate occasions with different banks, it's taken us nearly seven months to get a bank account open mm. simply because of a compliance issue. And that cannot be sensible. No, it's not sensible, but it's a reality. Dan, are you finding the same thing that it's You know, I, I think it is. And it's the case. And, um, you know, we, we, I, I wish you'd give us more credit for passing Dodd-Frank, um, which is inflicting pain globally. Um, but there's, it's not just about Frank, it's things like the FCPA, which has been around for a while, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FATCA, which is basically uh, making the international banks uh, do some tax policing for the U.S., and then there were some modest fines on a few global banks in the U.S., a trivial matter of $9 billion for BNP Paribas. And what that has done is has just induced what I see in our clients as sort of a, uh, an almost a paranoia and a fear. It's paralyzing for treasurers who are concerned with, if you look at FCPA, it's almost like go-to-jail legislation, and the penalties are severe for non-compliance. And if you're looking at the banks, the banks are, are much more eager to decline business than they are to do it, 
if it's going to cause them any kind of pain. So Neil's story uh, is probably an optimistic one. I would say, Neil, it only took you seven months to open an account. My story on that one is I was having, uh, having a cup of a coffee with one of the treasury people at a very large and very prestigious American university who was having a double of the time opening accounts in parts of Asia because they simply didn't know who they were. And this is, this is a little bit like someone saying they don't know what the Ryder Cup is. So it's, um, it's a global phenomenon for sure, Jack. And the issue seems to be how you manage it. So are, are any of you doing uh, moving some of your business so it's just in the U.S. so you don't have to comply with European law or vice versa? I think we have seen, and it was probably um, Dodd-Frank that drove it a couple of years ago, we saw quite a few of our American counterparties novating uh, long-term derivatives to European branches. Right. No, 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 no big moves recently. Neil, is that happening? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I think we started that process, um, or, or we, were we were considering doing that, but actually, unless you're going to go to obscure countries, I think you're going to get caught one way or the other. So we're, we're taking it on the chin, I think is the, is the best way to describe it, and saying we, we won't do that, because sooner or later we, we're going to get caught. And I think if you're in a, a global business, you, you know, you do need bank accounts in the US, uh, uh, you do need to trade in the US, um, if you just try and structure it uh, in the simplest way. Possible. Stephen, where, where are you coming from in your experience with this regulatory compliance? Um, well, I, I agree with everybody else on this. It's bad for the banks, it's for the corporates. Um, but I think the issue is, and you said there's so many of the hundreds of these things coming out, minimums coming out a week. But if you look in the state, I mean, there's nine separate bodies, and then you've got the intergovernmental bodies. All these things work, and everyone has to understand each of the organisations, what they mean. Will it change one organisation? We'd have the same impact another organisation, etc., etc. So it's you're right. I mean, it's a necessary evil that we have to do, um, but it is resulting in things like it's taking seven months to open a bank account, which is absolutely ridiculous, particularly for large corporates who are listed, you know, reporting accounts, etc., etc. Whether people are not in the states or not is 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 difficult because you've got the was it the fact of regulations over there to say that if there's a non-US bank making a payment in dollars, if they're not registered with the uh, IRS, then they have to deduct 30% WHT, I think. Yeah, so it's, it's, we've got to, I mean, every organisation has got to comply with that. It's interesting to hear that there's some things happening, so there will be ways to improve prove it without, without reinventing the wheel, I guess, but it's just one of the necessary evils we all have to do with. Are you all depressed? Is there any way around this? Because there are stories coming out where Reuters and others are saying that you can turn it into an opportunity to tidy up your operation, um, clarify existing relationships and so on. Guy, are you doing any of that? No. No, I, I think we're, we're with Stephen really and uh, just li living with it, um, trying to make compliance as efficient as possible. But yeah, certainly living with the pain and, and resetting our, exactly as, as Neil said, how long it takes to open bank and frustrated by the length of the time, a month or two, to open a, a bank account for an entity that the bank already knows when, you know, I think it should be two or three days. One of the things that I'm being told by a couple of our US banks is that they are uh, recruiting thousands of compliance officers 
in order to respond to the to the increased workload that this uh, increased regulation is uh, is bringing. Now, whether that's the right answer or not, if it speeds up the process, then maybe. But uh, um, I'm, I'm wondering who's going to pay for all of this. Oh, you are. Can I change the subject to another example? I mean, this has been a problem for a long time. Anti-money laundering uh, compliance, where the restriction on making payments is can be quite severe. How do you manage that inside ABB? Because you must have may have to make payments all sorts of peculiar places. Yeah, if I step back a, a little bit, we have um, a group-wide, uh, it's actually one of our top um, strategic, uh, if, you, if you want to call it strategic values or initiatives, where it's a program called the Integrity, where everyone has to go through extremely regular training and quite intensive and time-consuming training to make sure not only are they complying with the law, but they're doing the right ethical thing as well. And the idea is that if you're doing the right ethical thing, you're behaving you're just the whole way that you run your business uh, is ethical, then you, you will also be compliant as well. So there is a, a, a tremendous, I think uh, Dan mentioned it, there is a tremendous fear by the banks about not, getting, uh, not doing something that is going to result in either an, a, a huge fine or imprisonment uh, the corporates are in the same boat as well, and certainly at ABB, uh, we, we take uh, um, anti-money laundering, we take backhoe, we take any uh, compliance with regulations extremely seriously. It, it, you know, I don't want to talk about even putting contingencies in place to cover any kind of fines and things, but it wouldn't be beyond realm that, that, that the corporates do that as well. Stephen, you've got experience in your old employer where basically you don't won't tell the people, the corporate, whether they've got it right or not. Well, we, as with Neil, I mean, we, uh, within Barclays, we all had to do our compliance training as well, which included AML. Um, one of the things that, if Neil came to me and said, can you tell me what I have to put on this payment to get through the system, I can't tell him, because it's classified as tipping off, and therefore, you have to put on what you think you should put on, and then we'll put it through the system. And it's, it's that fear factor, I suppose, really, that, you know, it's, um, if you're making a big payment, yes, you need to put all the details on and let your bank know you're making that payment, but then the compliance team in each bank could stop that payment for any reason at all if they're not happy with that, and therefore further investigation is needed. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like you can't, you can't tell a corporate what to put in what field on a payment because it is tipping off, and therefore... Then I'm guilty rather than, or the bank's guilty rather than uh, um, the corporate. And, well, I suppose they both are, but nevertheless, it's the bank who will get the, the biggest fine, I'm sure. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, we're not allowed to say, yes, you can do this, this, and this, and this. All we would say is that you have to put all details of that payment on the, on the payment order. And that exacerbates, of course, it's the payment on behalf of, because you need the ultimate um, payer and the ultimate beneficiary on there as well. So all these things means. You just need the information, and then you know it goes through the system or not goes through the system as the case may be. Um, Guy, are there any ways around this? Um, no, uh, actually, uh, Jack. Unfortunately, no. Uh, it, you, you could joke that a lot of this is the uh, the regulatory capture and consultants full employment act is what we've been seeing, but that's uh, that's really what's happening. Is um, we had a client. Uh, 
a few years ago that had around 1,400 bank accounts, uh, the nature of their business, uh, energy services, uh, rapid growth through acquisitions, and uh, no one had paid a lot of attention to treasury management, and uh, with the regulations and enforcement, all of a sudden someone got a very serious case of religion and, and had to attend to it quickly. So no, there's, there's not a lot you can do about it, and I think to, to build on what Stephen said, one of the issues you have is that there are the regulations, but there's understanding what that actually means, and there's understanding enforcement. And one of the particular issues you see in the U.S. is there's sort of a compromise outside of court or outside of the regulatory environment because the bank or the corporate just wants to get on with it, and it's easier to pay the fine, and you can see that in some fairly high-profile cases really recently. So, no, there is no easy way to get around it, I think, what... What Neil is doing with, uh, you know, the context of all the training is very important. Uh, and it's just, it's, um, it's placed that one of the things it has done, let's, let's, let's be somewhat positive, one of the things it has done is benefited the technology vendors in their various forms from treasury management system providers to those who provide corporate secretary systems to those who provide ways of turning spreadsheets into data warehouses. So... That, that's enough. I'd like to um, move topics now. Global cash management, cash concentration is something that Neil, you're spending 24 hours a day on. What are the issues as you try and do your euro pool, your US dollar pool, your multi-currency pool in Singapore and so on? What's the overriding issues and opportunities? So um, one of the overriding issues is the, the legacy landscape that, that, that we have. Uh, Dan's mentioned a client that had 1,400 bank accounts. Uh, we have a few more than that. But it's not so much the number of bank accounts. I, I don't worry about that. I worry about the number of banks that we have those bank accounts with, um, which means that we have a lot of different systems, um, uh, electronic bank systems. We also, from a legacy point of view, are present in over 100 countries. And although we have shared services, shared accounting services in terms of accounts payable, accounts receivable, they're spread across 37 different uh, shared service centers. Um, so you have different processes, different systems, different banks, um, and trying to streamline that so that we have one bank per currency uh, and one process uh, in terms of delivering payments, managing our uh, bank statements, doing the reconciliation, uh, is a challenge. Is that the same as the Miller Certainly the, the rationalisation of the number of banks has been a lot more important for us as well. So I think, I think we're, we're definitely on the same page as Neil there. Um, and it is managing things like electronic banking systems and access to them, particularly when you're running a centralised treasury. Um, you know, if within a country, a couple, uh, people have got one or two electronic banking tokens in their drawer, they can probably manage that. But when you've got regional or global centres and people have got 60 or 70 um, banking tokens in their drawer, it's totally unmanageable. So, um, yeah, the establishment of um, regional banks has been uh, key. Dan, what's the sort of thing you're seeing from the... US corporate. Uh, we object just to qualify. We, we do work with companies on a global basis, but uh, we are based in, in, in North America. Uh, I would say that the things that you're seeing in North America are one, 
no difference from uh, from what Neil and Guy reported to be uh, trying to consolidate the number of banks and relationships. And in that sense, um, a lot of treasurers are beginning to realize that their bank spend is larger than they thought because things that hitherto had not been considered part of, uh, of the bank spend are, for example, card services which are taking off, particularly on the P-card front or on the merchant front, uh, all sorts of custody arrangements. As, as, as people are looking, as the treasurer is looking at the size of their credit facility and the, and the hungry transactional bank mouths they need to feed, they're discovering they have more business than they thought. And that, in turn, leads to sort of a, um, a scrutiny of, of who their counterparties are, trying as they streamline their business, as who they invite into their facilities, and also how they reward people. So that's, uh, that's certainly something that's, that's going on, the, the RFP business and the consolidation. And the second, I think, is also um, there's a lot more discussion of technology. The technology front, I mean, you know, the, the treasury management systems have sort of waxed and waned in terms of popularity and, and topicality, if that's the word. And right now, they're very much front and center. So people, uh, corporates are getting budget to do things, and the, and the vendors are throwing wonderful parties at the AFP and Budapest and in other locations. So Neil, you mentioned virtual accounts as part of your solution. Where does that fit? Yeah, so we, we're quite a decentralized organization. We, we've been slowly reducing the number of legal entities that, uh, that we have around the world, but we still have some countries that have uh, you know, maybe 30, 40 different legal entities. And rather than have a bank account per legal entity, um, we've, um, we're putting in place a, a virtual account set up with a, a European bank uh, based in Frankfurt. Um, and this is a, a tool that they provide which allows you to track um, payments um, going out of a virtual bank account and produce a statement on the virtual bank account with a virtual IBAN. And it just means that we can open and close those kind of banks, bank accounts without the sort of uh, pain that you get from the regulatory issues that we were talking about earlier. And uh, so it's, it's really using technology uh, to reduce the number of physical bank accounts you have and therefore the, the, the cost associated with that as well. Right, there's always an issue in cash concentration in terms of tax issues and opportunities, inverted commas. Where is SAP Miller coming from? I mean, obviously you can't be indiscreet here, but there are opportunities in the tax um, frameworks. I think uh, our cash flows um Certainly, a historical desire to, to centralise cash to repay debt. I think historically we have been um, short cash um, and an a issuer of commercial paper, and so we wanted to get all of our cash to the centre to repay um, repay our debt as quickly as possible. So I, I, I think that was probably more of a, a consideration than um, taking any. Um, advantage of, of tax treaties. We do use some sort of virtual account, it's more of a payments on behalf of solution that, that, that we've got set up ourselves internally, really restricted to our corporate entities. We've got about 60 or 70 legal entities that sort of form the uh, corporate um, division, as, as we call it, and quite a lot of those entities don't have their own bank accounts, rather about triggering those and just book into company uh, entries. It's sort of a, 
along the lines of the virtual account to, no, to stop the proliferation of bank accounts that, that would be otherwise required. Just one final uh, question, Stephen, is very briefly. What are the opportunities in Africa for cash concentration, boarding, sweeping, and so on? Minimal? No, I wouldn't say minimal. I think that countries like South Africa and Nigeria do have an initial building, for instance, um, and cash concentration. But of course, the exchange control regulations in those countries mean non-resident issues. Um, so cash concentration is doable in most countries locally. It's the cross-border nature of cash concentration in Africa, which is the issue. Are you allowed to transfer that money out of the country? If you transfer that money, is it considered as capital repatriation? Are funds back considered as injections of new capital? Um, what happens if you have minority shareholders, etc., etc.? So it's difficult. I wouldn't deny it's difficult, and it's not as easy as it is in Europe, where you can just say, yes, we can do whatever you want in Europe on the same day basis because of the euro. Something um, is doable in almost every country, not all, but almost every country. And of course, you've got things, and the guy you mentioned about, you know, you've got the offshore things in there. Um, Mauritius is an offshore centre, 36 TTAs with other countries, but their solutions are mainly in the major currencies dollars, euros, sterling, perhaps, uh, Swiss. Um, so if you deal with local currencies, exotics as well, if you're transferring them offshore somewhere, how do you manage the FX side of that risk as well? You know, so that, there's, a, there's a huge number of issues. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. That's probably sums up Africa in general. It, it, well, I, I don't think Africa all goes into the same basket. I think um, there are some countries, Botswana springs to mind, where it's it's pretty open and, and fairly easy to do things. Um, we, we've got a, a cash pool in Botswana, we've got a very good cash pool in South Africa, uh, we've got a sweeping set up in Ghana, um, but there are possibilities. Changing topic, moving on to payment systems, I'd like to examine one very old system that's been around forever, for a long time, and then a couple of new ones. Multilateral netting has been with us for many years, and ABB is one of the biggest users of multilateral netting system internally. Um, and you, yours is on a receivable basis, isn't it? Uh, yes. Are the opportunities, is it level now, or are there any new opportunities? Well, that's a good question. I think because we've had it for so long, I think uh, we're just tinkering at the edges. I mean, there's, um, you know, we, we have, most of the countries that we deal with uh, that participate in it, I think it's, it's only when you get changes in legislation, and I'm thinking of South America and uh, the issues we've had uh, in places like Argentina and Venezuela, um, that you, you've got people that are actively involved in the netting system that maybe you don't want in anymore. Gen generally speaking, it works extremely well, and the opportunities within our organisation are very limited at the moment to to make any improvements. Dan, you, you've got some experience of exploiting netting inside Latin America. What, what's happening there? Well, actually, it's, it's curious. I mean, you know, the kind of comment we got from a, uh, a Latin American, uh, Brazil-based treasurer that one of the reasons he particularly likes multilateral netting is it is a way of eliminating transaction taxes on bank accounts. Uh, sort of similar to the old things that used to go on in Queensland and Australia, you know, the bank account debit taxes. And so if you are netting, you basically finesse 
uh, lots of taxes, particularly in Argentina and, and, and elsewhere, uh, because, you know, this is Latin America where tax, taxes are loved um, right after their beach time. Um, in, as a general rule, we're seeing much more interest in, Latin, in, uh, in multilateral netting. There are more vendors. There are mid-sized U.S. banks offering netting solutions. Um, it's, uh, it seems that you can't go anywhere without someone sort of talking about netting. So I'd say the leading edge where Neil is, um, there are obviously tweaks, but I think there are a lot more people piling in um, as some of the major countries where people are able to go to now become... Uh, less suspicious of netting, and uh, it's, it's changed over the years, as you well know, Jack. Guy, do you want any comment on um, netting, or are you okay? Um, we don't actually use multilateral netting. Brewing is a very local business, um, and we don't have a vast amount of intercompany trade. The only area we are looking at is externally with, with banks um, on CLS for settling FX. Okay, can we, can we move on to new... Technologies and payment systems. Uh, uh, payment systems is a jungle. There are just so many new things coming up. There's a whole raft around mobile transactions, transactions from a mobile phone. In your treasury, Neil and Guy, does this figure at all, or is it just not considered? It is being considered, but more from what, what point of view? Uh, in commercially, um, particularly in I think Africa and Latin America, um, where banking is not particularly well established in our customer base, but everybody has a mobile phone, so um, it's a lot easier for them to pay by mobile than, than probably any other means, apart from cash, and that's got a security risk. So if we can replace cash with, with mobile payments, then um, that, that's a, a plus for us, but not not really from a treasury perspective, I guess treasury's role in this is to take the ideas from the banks and pass them down to, uh, to our commercial people. No, I just echo the kind of uh, customers or suppliers that, uh, that we deal with, it's, uh, it's just not appropriate. I mean, I'm sure our customers would like to pay for a transformer or a robot with a mobile phone, but I don't think we want to accept that. But Jack, just one thing on the, on the African mobile, Phones in Africa. I think there's 80% of the population have a mobile phone. Only about 25% have a bank account. So that supports what the guy is saying there. That anything that the mobile phones can do to help payments in Africa, particularly, is is a boon to business. It changes the business model certainly in, in those regions. But Dan, we've got new things like Apple Pay with much more higher security and so on. Do you think this is going to make a difference, or is it again only in the developing regions? No, I think I mean, Stephen makes a, a very good point, particularly in Africa. I mean, if you have a payroll of 7,000 miners located in the middle of nowhere, mobiles are the way to pay. Uh, you know, Apple's uh, come up with Apple Pay in, in the U.S., and of course, because Apple did it, it's, it's obviously got to be wonderful. That will probably take off, is my guess, and it will probably take off because it's going to be cheaper to configure for um, uh, for merchants to configure for Apple Pay than it will be for the bank, the, issue, the card issuers to put in uh, proper chips into the cards so we can be, uh, the U.S. can join the rest of the world in card security. So Apple Pay is going to take off. There's sort of a number of other uh, tweaks on that uh, 
that, that it probably will go as well. You know, as Neil said, they're not they're not for corporates, but most you know many corporations uh, ultimately have smaller users of their client base. So you know whether you're coping with with Apple Pay and, and accepting a card, or whether you're coping with the odd person that would like to pay with a Bitcoin. Um, it is going to confront you, and um, Bitcoin is, is, the, is the more interesting one to me. But, uh, is, Bitcoin, is Bitcoin irrelevant, isn't it? Well, you know, when, when, when someone, you know, everyone used to say BlackBerry had a lock on uh, corporate email until people said, I want to bring my, app, my iPhone and use it for work. And, and that's the way Bitcoin would come in, as people would want to uh, settle contact. You have Bitcoin in their pocket. Well, they're not going to have a Bitcoin in their pocket, but they're going to have a Bitcoin on some device. So it's, it's certainly not anything any, any sensible treasurer wants to be taking positions in, but it is something that you'll need to, that I think people, uh, particularly in, in consumer-facing businesses, are going to need to deal with. Someone was selling an island the other day, and the price was in Bitcoins, and I think the equivalent price was about a million dollars. Mm. And it works until Mr. Putin decides that you can't convert bitcoins into rubles and back again, or, or perhaps uh, the Treasury Department in the U.S. says that it's difficult to convert bitcoin to dollars, and you might have to wait for six weeks. Funny enough, it is. Um, one of the European finance directors asked me about bitcoin a couple of months ago, um, so I, I did do a, a one-slide presentation on it. Um, I don't think it's Close, but it's, it's definitely on the horizon. And I, I think as Dan said, it's, you know, the impetus will be when somebody asks you to, or asks to pay you in Bitcoins and, and doesn't really have a, a viable alternative. Um, and, you know, you're, you're driven by your customers and if they want to pay by Bitcoins, then you need to make uh, provision to accept. Jack, I was just going to say on Apple Pay, and I think what Dan was saying about this is re uh, big corporate retailers. And looking at Apple Pay earlier this morning, actually, I see that McDonald's, Starbucks, Walgreens, people like that are saying Apple Pay, yes, they're going to accept that, maybe in their own app or maybe just generally. But, but yes, I mean, for that, it, it, it will have a, anyone, certainly all the youngsters around these days with a mobile phone, um, with smartphone, will be using it, I'm sure. Uh, Bitcoin, yeah, it's a good idea, but who's the bank of last resort, I guess? Mm. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say, Stephen, you can buy an apple pie with an apple pay. Oh, Neil, that's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> what a thought for Friday evening. <laughs> now, well, all I was going to say, from, from a corporate point of view, the thing that I'm finding more interesting, particularly as we are uh, a, a Swift, um, uh, or, or using SWIFT, other the disruptors like Treasury Intelligence Solutions, Opus Capita, the way that SAP uh, are going in terms of, you know, I, if I was a service bureau, I'd be a little bit worried at the moment because this is a, this is a much cheaper alternative. Um, it's just a question of whether it's viable or, or you know, for the future um, and, and the cost model as well. That's something we're interested in. Thank you very much for the view. But Guy and Neil, what are the, your take-outs from today? What's the most important 
point for you? But personally, I would just say that um, it's reassuring to know that we're not the only one that it takes seven months to get a bank account open for. I can tell my boss it's not me being lazy. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, to, to hear that the experience is, is common, um, that's not to say I'm unhappy with it, but... Um, yeah, like Neil, we're, we're, not, we're not alone, so uh, all, all suffering under the, the, the same weight of regulation. Dan, what's your take? You know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's not an incredibly fun time to be in Treasury unless you're a very detail-oriented person uh, able to cope with a lot of complexity, but uh, the interest rate environment will change, uh, the regulatory environment will ease, and in and in a few years, the good times will have returned. Steve, are you as positive as him? Um, oh, well, rates certainly increase, yes. Will that mean good times return, or will that mean that there's a, a, a mini ripple, if you like, in the financial world because uh, the companies that are laden with debt can't afford it anymore? Um, but yes, I think that you'll see interest rates go up, and you'll see um, at least deposits and funds will be worth something then, rather than today where they're worth absolutely nothing at all. 